that in order to meet this moment, we have to recognize our California comeback. I think in my time, this is a very unusual and a very unique time. What I'm saying about the state today, it's an enterprising, modernizing, pluralizing, unionizing nation state. Hello and welcome back to the California Nation podcast. I'm Gil Duran, the California Opinion Editor of the Sacramento Bee, and today the topic is vaccines. Now that the election is over and Joe Biden is president, our attention turns to the vaccine for the coronavirus for COVID-19 and how quickly we can get it out there so that we can end the pandemic and stop having to do things like stay at home and avoid our families and hopefully keep the death toll as low as possible. My guest today to talk about the vaccine are three doctors, or I should say two doctors and one medical student who will soon be a doctor. Dr. Richard Pan, state senator from Sacramento. Dr. Daniel Turner-Rioveras, a Sacramento native and an assistant professor of medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and the co-founder of Salud Contec. And Oksana Rodriguez-Torres, a medical student who's starting her career on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you all for joining me today at California Nation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'll start off by talking about the vaccine rollout in the United States and in California and why it's been so slow and disappointing to some degree. I, like a lot of people, have been focused on the vaccine not only as a journalist reading as much as I can to prepare to write about it, to prepare for this podcast, but trying to figure out where to get the older people in my family the vaccine now that 65 and older are technically going to be allowed to get it in California. And I found it a very frustrating exercise with websites that don't have information and clinics that don't have any appointments for the next three months. And when you read about the details, you realize that while it's tempting to get mad at state government or, or Governor Gavin Newsom, the reality is the federal government has not provided enough doses. And so our message to people is at odds with the reality we have. So I want to start with you, Dr. Penn. Why has our rollout in the United States and in California been so slow and, and imperfect? And is there anything that can be done to set it back on track? Frankly, uh, we didn't prepare for the vaccine. So the federal government invested a lot in developing the vaccine through Operation Warp Speed. But what they didn't do is invest in actually delivering the vaccine. In fact, the federal government, until the most recent stimulus package, which was only passed a few weeks ago, provided very little funding for distribution of the vaccines or even the planning to do so. Uh, in addition, uh, the vaccine production uh, predictions uh, seem to be out of joint with the reality, uh, and that makes it very hard to plan. So imagine that you have to plan a wedding, and you're the wedding planner, and you ask the bride and the groom, so uh, how many guests are there going to be at the wedding? Well, we don't know. It's somewhere between, you know, 100 and 500. Okay. Uh, what's the date of the wedding? Well, we haven't decided, it, but it's going to be sometime in June or July. It gets very hard to plan for that. And so, and then what's your budget? Oh, we haven't figured that one out. Or we have no money right now, but we'll tell you later. I mean, that, that's been some of the challenges that we've been facing. Uh, now, could we have done a better job once we knew the vaccine was actually approved? Uh, yes, I think we could have, but frankly, it's been very difficult to do planning at different levels because of the lack of accurate data on how many vaccines we're gonna get, uh, the fact that uh, we had few resources to actually build out things prior 
to very recently. And uh, so we do need to turn this around. I'm hoping with the new federal leadership, we're going to have much more consistency in terms of information and transparency, and also the lessons that we've learned in the state about trying to uh, develop more statewide standards instead of leaving it to a lot of variations between different localities. And when you say we, do you mean the federal government mostly? It sounded like you were kind of talking about the, the United States there in terms of our preparation and lack of prep for, for this vaccine. Certainly the federal government has a very important and significant role to play in making this happen. That's where I think a lot of the problems originated. However, I think here in the state too, we are uh, trying to do things better as well. Simplifying the distribution process, uh, being sure we establish uh, better statewide approaches so that we can have more consistent messaging, recognizing that uh, people, you know, the things don't stop at county boundaries and uh, basically uh, also developing better infrastructure. But of course, those take resources as well. On January 13th, Governor Newsom announced that people 65 and older would be able to get the vaccine in California. This caused a rush of people, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, trying to figure out where to get the vaccine. But it turns out there aren't enough doses to meet demand, and it might not be till June that we can get all the 65 and older vaccinated. What happened there, and why does that message, why did the governor's message seem to conflict so much with reality? The challenge was is that uh, we were getting vaccines and we were trying to figure out how do we push them out as quickly as possible while still prioritizing equity and other types of things that we wanted to try to promote. Uh, the challenge became that you had vaccines going out to different centers, right? Counties, health systems, other places. And uh, when they still had vaccine, some of them, not all of them, some of them may have still had some doses left depending on the circumstances in their local area but yet they were afraid to give those doses because we did create a somewhat complex regimen of this group first, this group next, and following. So really the message about 65 and over, and by the way, this also was paralleled by the CDC. So I want to keep in mind that when the governor announced it, the CDC was announcing this at the same time or even just before. And so I think there was a, some desire to try to minimize confusion with a message coming from the federal government with what we're doing at the state. But I think where things sort of tripped up is, is that uh, we need to put in the context of that message that we have a shortage of vaccines. So we are trying to give more flexibility to the people giving the vaccines. So they try to get all their doses out by loosening up some of these restrictions. But that doesn't mean we have vaccines available for everyone over 65. So technically you're eligible for the vaccine, but it may not be available to you yet at this point in time. And so that's a sort of a nuanced difference in the message. I think we should have done a better job in communicating. Mm -hmm. At the same time, scarcity can create a greater sense of desire for an object that uh, not everybody can have. So I'll talk more about that later. But Dr. Tornio Veras, this week you wrote an op-ed in the Sacramento Bee. And in addition to supply being a barrier for people getting vaccines, you're also noticing out there some hesitancy in some communities. Uh, as people uh, express fear or have been exposed to misinformation about the vaccine. Uh, can you say more about the cultural barriers to vaccination and what's causing vaccine hesitancy among some people of color? And what can we do about it? Um, those are all um, a lot of the points that we touched upon in, in the op-ed. Um, when I started hearing about the rollout, we um, you know noticed the numbers and that there's, as Dr. Pan brought up, 
multiple reasons why this rollout has been slow. Um, but what we were surprised to see, there was many things we were surprised to see as the rollout uh, continued, but one of those was um, vaccine hesitancy in uh, health worker um, population. And, and that caught us by surprise. Um, and some areas, LA County was, um, some data showed that it was 20 to 40% of the healthcare workers broadly across uh, different levels were requesting to wait uh, to receive that first vaccine. Um, some nursing homes in Ohio were as high as 60%. And as I said, there was you know multiple reasons why the rollout has been slow, but even if you're able to get the vaccines to the population, which we were, we were able to do in Los Angeles and lots of parts of California, and I you know, congratulate all the hard work that's been done in order to get that accomplished. Um, but once the vaccines arrived, if nobody wants it, the vaccines aren't going to be given. And then that's what led to the scramble and distributing them to whoever was available to get it. Um, and so I feel that addressing vaccine hesitancy is, should be maybe number one focus of this vaccine rollout. And if it's not given the level of importance that it deserves, I think it will continue to be a slow rollout. Um, and then you asked why there's this vaccine hesitancy. Um, I think there's several different reasons. And one of the suggestions I brought up in the op-ed is that rather than assume why there is a vaccine hesitancy, um, I think we need to listen. We need to listen to the people. We need to listen to the communities, which would involve funding, as Dr. Pan said, because we're going to have to have many small discussions in these communities. Uh, we're going to have to listen more than we talk. And then just by listening, I think the communities will respect whatever we say um, in return. Um, and if that is a suggestion that they do get vaccinated, I think they will listen to those suggestions much more wholeheartedly. Um, and it's just going to take time. It's going to take listening. And I think in the Black communities, you know, historical injustices are well known in a Tuskegee. Um, in the Latino population, there's also a history of similar experiments in Latin America, in Panama, Guatemala, uh, that were recently discovered. So there is some of that also in the Latino community. And then another issue with the Latino immigrant community is um, just a natural fear of government entities. When Trump rolled out public charge, the effect that it had is still ongoing. Um, there's always a worry in these communities about receiving and then being locked out or not being able to receive other things that they would need to help them, you know, their family uh, move forward and survive. Uh, Dr. Pan, you've tangled with the anti-vaccination movement a lot. To what degree do you think that they're actually kind of getting purchase here in a wide swath of communities? Do you think this is a big victory for the anti-vax movement that there's hesitancy, or do you think these are separate issues in different communities? I think there are separate issues in different communities, although I would point out that the anti-vaccine uh, leaders have convened together. They are working on uh, a strategy to in increase their influence. They are taking advantage of discussions about the COVID vaccine uh, that are taking place in many different venues, particularly on social media as a way to magnify their voice. Uh, we do know that social media algorithms uh, tend to give them a platform and get their message out, which is a problem. 
and that certainly uh, creates uh, significant challenges. I would point out that uh, many people do have honest questions about the vaccine, and we need to listen to them and answer them. And in fact, uh, I do think we need to spend more time and effort right now doing that, because when the vaccine is finally available in these communities, we want to be sure people are ready to accept them because they've got their questions answered. At the same time, I also do think we need to figure out how we combat the anti-vaccine movement, because that represents a certain level of friction uh, in our efforts. So as we're trying to educate people, unfortunately, there's going to be a group of people who are not starting from a blank slate, whose minds have uh, already been, uh, I guess, you know, uh, turned or, or, or seated with anxieties or doubts that are not based in reality. So we have anxiety and doubts that are based in either lack of information or uh, a, a historical reality that we must deal with, uh, and it's important. Those are very legitimate. Same time, we should be trying to minimize the platforming of disinformation that's designed to create anxieties that are not grounded in reality, but merely for the purpose of promoting someone else's agenda or their business model, frankly. This is all very personal, too. I've been sending links back and forth with relatives for the past two days. Every single piece of misinformation we're all familiar with about vaccines, you know, is that it's been debunked. The good thing is there's a lot of debunking material out there. It's like, well, read this if you think that, or read this. It's, it's very frustrating how far, and I'm arguing with family members in East LA and in Kentucky. So it's a very national in scope, the degree to which they're, and also some of it's fear of, is this going to hurt me in 20 years? You know, can I get sick from the virus? All the things we know are not the case, but it's important to try to walk people through those when they've been exposed to that kind of misinformation. Um, Oksana, or should I say future Dr. Rodriguez Torres, you're a medical student, you're starting out in the middle of a coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. Did you get the vaccine? And what are you seeing out there as you navigate this pandemic? Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, we got the vaccine. I've already gotten two, the two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. I go to school in um, UC Irvine, but my hometown is in Sacramento. And um, fortunately, the students in the front line were vaccinated as part of the first group. Uh, but this has certainly been an unprecedented um, uh, aspect of the start of my career and really for the whole world. No one expected this. And when this started almost uh, a year ago, uh, lots of healthcare workers around us were exposed. and infected, including um, the students, and we didn't know what, where, this, where, where this was gonna lead. And all that we have been able to do is keep our masks on, sanitize our hands as much as possible. Um, and, um, and then we've realized that our most vulnerable uh, communities, those of, of color that have been perpetually marginalized, Latinos, uh, African-Americans, indigenous communities have been the most affected. And so this has been the time for um, students uh, like us coming from underrepresented minorities or just in general students who are interested in our communities to step up and advocate uh, like it has been our dream for many of us uh, to, to um, advocate for these communities. And the way we've done that is uh, really being in the front line in, in the hospitals. There's about 80% here in Southern California of all COVID positive patients who are uh, Spanish-speaking, mostly Spanish-speaking only patients, and they're isolated. So we're there to to help them, help their families, uh, hopefully translate for them and, and in their language, their culture. And 
uh, in the outside in the community, trying to advocate for the community as a whole, participating in town halls that we're giving in, uh, in Spanish to to inform the community and like like um, like Dr. Panse said, to for them to be ready to get the vaccine as soon as it becomes um, available for them with factual information. It seems like there is starting to be a bit of more conversation about how we combat the uh, vaccine hesitancy or fear. And uh, one of the things that is sort of a byproduct of this shortage is that scarcity is actually one of the top seven points of persuasion. You can persuade people through scarcity. Marketers know this, hurry, 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 sale won't last, only two available. You know, that'll create more of a demand. People feel like, well, I should do this. Uh, the other ones are likability. If people like certain people, celebrities, they, they might feel more trusting toward it. They see Arnold Schwarzenegger or the governor or AOC or whoever getting the shot, they might feel more safe than that. People also trust what their in-groups are doing, which is what it sounds like you're talking about, town halls in the Latino community in Spanish, people talking in their own communities about it, feeling safer with that information. And uh, there's also social proof. I think the more people are doing something, more people feel it's safe to do it. These are sort of the, the techniques of persuasion that are well known to PR marketers and dark arts people like, like I used to be before I became a journalist again. And I hope someone out there is paying attention to all those points because there's a way right now with the scarcity, it's partially a, a botch, a, a, you know, it's botched, it's a mistake. But there is a reverse side there, which is that now people are like, wait, where do I get mine? I was talking to Dr. Turner Overas. My dad was being vaccine hesitant. And now he is uh, in the past week alone, just waiting to get the vaccine and can't wait. Uh, partially because someone in our family has COVID now and is not doing too well. So realizing what the alternative is has made it very real for him that you get the shots and, and that's what's gonna save your life at this point. Speaking of the shots, California recently halted the use of the Moderna vaccine for a few days because of some allergic reactions in, I think it was less than 10 people. And this is the, exactly the kind of news item when you're trying to convince people that vaccines are safe, that gets thrown in your face as an example. Well, why did they do that? And when you realize that it's like less than 10 people and they figured out what it was and they're moving forward, Dr. Turner Ovedas, you actually brought this up as something we should discuss. What do people need to know about the glitch there with the Moderna vaccine and, and why should they feel safe going forward? Right, and um, I actually was just looking this up and I find that I couldn't find much in the media <clears throat> um, where information was provided to calm people and to explain the ratios in a way where put it into layman's terms and understand what is this risk? Because I think what everyone's really asking is, this sounds scary. I'm a little scared. How scared should I be? And I think that's that's the role of uh, you know providers is to be able to you know come to patients or come to their community and explain to them the somewhat confusing numbers and what it what it means as far as what is their risk of having uh, an allergic reaction. And so to get an idea um, from the CDC data that's available. Um, they calculated uh, a risk of about one to two in 100,000 injections. Um, this is a higher risk than the flu. However, it's also a risk in the flu vaccine. It's a risk in the pneumovax. Um, ITP is a known, you know, rare side effect. And um, however, a severe allergic reaction, your risk with the MMR vaccine is one in uh, 20,000. And so that's a much higher risk. 
And so if you compare it to other vaccines that are available and that people are receiving, it's somewhere in the middle of being, it's not the riskiest and it's not the least of risk, um, but it's somewhere in the middle. And if you look at what is to gain from the vaccine and what could you lose, my favorite way of explaining that to patients is when they show me in the past, because vac vaccine hesitancy isn't anything new, right? That this has been around for a long time. Um, but I would say, how many people die of the flu vaccine every year? And, you know, they would look, give me a blank stare. And I'm like, zero, none. You know, do you, do you know how many die from the flu? And then, you know, we talk about those numbers. And then they realize, okay, so there is a risk of something, maybe some pain or some, some side effect, but non-deadly, um, dangerous, but non-deadly. And in the big scheme, scheme of things, it's worth the risk because you're going to gain so much from it. And that's kind of how I explain it. And not to say that's a cookie cutter response that everyone will respond to, but I think it's, you know, we need to have personalized approaches to communication the same way we're, we're having, you know, personalized medicine. Yeah. People understood the risk of getting into a car. They might have a very different right. uh, universe of what risk actually is. If you think about the risks we're surrounded by every day. In, in brief here, everybody, I went the 30 seconds just to say what you think people need to keep in mind as we move forward in the next few months, which could be some of the deadliest months in the pandemic, but also with the time of great hope, there's a vaccine. Hopefully we can all get it and get back to our normal lives soon. Dr. Pan, let's start with you. What, what do people need to keep in mind for this next period of the pandemic? First of all, we all need to do what we can to stop the spread of this virus. The less virus around, the better off we are. So that means wearing your mask, staying at home. The vaccine provides hope. The other thing I do want to say though, is, is that for many of us, actually for a vast majority of us, getting a vaccine is the normal, natural thing to do. So we don't go around telling people, I'm gonna get vaccinated. We need to go and speak up to tell people, I'm gonna get vaccinated. And I want the vaccine because that's going to protect me and my family members. And so when we stand up and people can see the numbers of people who actually say that we're committed to getting the vaccine, that will encourage other people to do so. So I know that for most of us, um, when we get vaccinated, we think, of course, what's the big deal? What? That's not news, but it is maybe news for other people. And so that's so very important that we stand up and speak out about the fact that we plan to get vaccinated or we've been vaccinated. And especially as we were talking about other you know, communities as well, we need to encourage people to do that as well. So I'm really proud of many of the uh, doctors who uh, come from minority communities uh, sharing their own experiences about getting vaccinated to encourage other people in their communities to get vaccinated. Oksana, what do people need to keep in mind during this next? Period. Uh, I first of all totally echo what Dr. Panja said. Uh, the, uh, we don't have a treatment, we don't have a cure for, for COVID-19 yet. Uh, so in the meantime, preventing is the best way of doing it by uh, washing your hands, keeping your masks on at all times in public, trying to stay at home. Do not visit other other uh, household. Do not receive visits at your household. Do not break your bubble. Uh, think of your house as your bubble and don't do not break it. And really, really consider getting information from 
uh, sources that are factual, that uh, follow scientific methods, and ask questions. Join uh, as, as many information sessions from experts that you can so that in an effort that you can prepare to get vaccinated as soon as it becomes available for you. It's an effort for you, for your family, your loved ones, your community, and really to end this pandemic. Dr. Turner Yoveras, we'll end with you. Um, I would say that I think the big question now people are asking is, if we build it, will they come? And the, the question remains difficult to answer. And I think the answer is in listening to our communities. And I would encourage everyone, um, wherever they are, whatever language they speak, whatever ethnicity uh, background they come from, um, come to town halls um, that you see. Many of them will be virtual. Um, if, you're, if you don't know how to join them, uh, please um, you know, reach out to your community um, organizations, nonprofits who um, have been trying to reach out and set up ways to teach them how to use these new technologies. And I think that's a really important key point because we, we, we shouldn't leave anybody behind. And if technology is, a, is the bridge and we're not teaching them how to use that, then we're leaving people behind. And so I think that's also an important aspect. And I just echo what everyone else has been saying. And I completely agree that we, we all just need to really take a different approach and let the communities tell us how best to address their questions. Thank you all for joining me on California Nation.